This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation, and forward thinking, and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tanji Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches! Hello again, Inspiration Junkies. It's me, Tanji Renee, and this is That's What She Did Podcast. You're listening to Season 6, Episode 7. And that means after today, there are only three episodes left in the season. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss what's coming. And make sure you enter our weekly giveaway because there are some great books, including today's author, about to come down the pipeline. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Janice Kaplan. She's the writer, journalist, and a TV producer. She happens to be the author of 15 books, just 15, including the New York Times bestseller, The Gratitude Diaries and her latest book called The Genius of Women, which we're going to be talking about today. She was the editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine and the executive producer of more than 30 primetime network television specials. She's appeared frequently on TV shows including Today, Good Morning America, and she is currently the host of the daily podcast The Gratitude Diaries from iHeartMedia. I was excited to get her onto the show. I enjoyed reading her book, and I want to share it with you. So let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to That's What She Did podcast. This week, I have Janice Kaplan, and I'm really excited to introduce her work to you and her latest book, The Genius of Women, From Overlooked to Changing the World. This was a really interesting read. Full disclosure, folks, you know I tell you the truth all the time. I'm not done with it (laughs) because there's so many great authors and I'm reading all of their work. I have a huge stack of reading by my bed. I'm just walking around with books all the time, but I'm more than halfway finished with this book, and I've loved it so far. It's been really interesting. I felt like I've learned so much and I think you're going to enjoy it too. So welcome Janice. Thank you so much for being here today. 
Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. But I got to tell you, in all modesty, you have to finish this book. It's really good and important. And I'm just so excited about this book. But it's a pleasure to be here to get to talk to you. Thank, thank you. It is really good. And I'm definitely going to finish it. In fact, <laughs> I will probably be done with it maybe tonight or tomorrow at the latest. That's how close <laughs> I am to finishing. There are um, no tests. It's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I do think it's really impactful work. And I think it's timely as well. I remember when I first heard of the book, I think it was your publisher, maybe a publicist reached out to me. This book is coming out. You might be interested in it. Read the synopsis. I was like, I'm definitely interested in that. And then your book came out and the pandemic happened and everything went on lockdown. <laughs> right. How did you do with that? How did that impact the launch? Yeah, well, it impacted. I had about two weeks of a book tour. And, you know, I was very lucky because I do have a great publisher in Dutton and they've been enormously supportive of so many of my books. And uh, authors don't always get book tours anymore, but I did get to go to a number of places and make some appearances. But then I had things scheduled for all the spring. And I think it was, I don't know, maybe March 12th or thereabouts was the day I did my last event. And then everything just fell apart and shut down after that. So I have been able to do some Zoom events and some Zoom talks, and the subject does resound with a lot of people. And you know, the good news is that there are always second chances. So I'm not sure I'm allowed to actually say this yet. My publisher just told me that they are planning to bring a paperback out next year, which will be a second launch for the book. So, you know, there's always something good to look forward to and find a positive way to move forward. There is, there is. I hope that definitely happens for you. And being that we're still in this pandemic and we're distancing, it's a good time to read new books, right? Or read read some great ones, but definitely check out some new ones. And I'm loving this one so far. I wasn't sure what to expect when I got the book. I was like, what? It, this looks, I just love the way it looks. The cover looks almost like, you know, a fiction novel. It's very engaging. <laughs> <laughs> so I was immediately pulled into it. Janice, why don't you kick us off by telling us how you came to this work? I like that you said it looks like a fiction novel on the cover. And I have written fiction and nonfiction. And what I try to do is tell stories when I'm writing nonfiction. To me, what's important is the narrative and bringing people along on my journey. And I've been interested in women's issues for much of my career, way back, way back. Uh, the year I graduated college, I wrote my first book, which was called Women in Sports. And then I went on and I've had a career as a television producer and as a magazine editor, a journalist and a writer. And I felt with this book like everything I had done had, was coming together. Because what really intrigued me was the question of how is it that over all the years and over all the generations, with all the obstacles they face, some women have managed to achieve so much and fly so high. And what sets them apart? What allows them to do that? So, you know, one of my previous books, it was a bestseller called The Gratitude Diaries. And it may be that I, because of that book, I approach everything in a very positive way. So I was less concerned about, in some ways, what those obstacles were, because of course we know them. And I talk about them at great length in the book, but I was less concerned with what those obstacles were than you, how you overcome them. And so to me, that was the exciting of writing this book and I got to meet fabulous women because I interviewed so many genius women who are working right now and I did lots of research into women from the past. Mm -hmm. So what pulled me into the book almost immediately is it occurred to me that I've never questioned or really thought much about the word genius itself and it's something that you address, right? <laughs> Where does this word come from? What does it mean? Why do we think of it in our culture the way that we think of it? 
after your research and all of the many interviews you've done with these incredible women and all that you've learned, how do you now define genius? Well, you know, um, let me take a step back there because one of the inspirations for the book was a survey that was done actually by a friend of mine named Mike Berland, who's a very well-known pollster and strategist. Mm -hmm. And he did a survey for various reasons on genius a few years ago. And one of the questions was about female genius. And it turned out that 90% of Americans said that geniuses tend to be men. 90% is a crazy number. You don't get 90, you know, this is America. You don't get 90% of people to agree about anything. Mm -hmm. And when asked to name a female genius, virtually the only name anybody came up with was Marie Curie. So that's what set me off in going like, wait a minute, what is genius and why do we define it in a male way? Once I started the book, I one of the first places I went was London and I figured lots of smart people in London and I did some interviews there. And one of the people I spoke to was a professor from Cambridge named Charles Jones. And he's a very English kind of guy, you know, old-fashioned. <laughs> and we were sitting and having lunch and I, actually we were having lunch in order to talk about his work, not mine, but I told him that I was doing this project and he sort of looked at me and he said genius that would be where extraordinary talent meets celebrity and I was really struck by that extraordinary talent meets celebrity now this is I said is kind of a classic old-school English professor he did not mean celebrity in the Kardashian sort of way this mm -hmm. is not a man who watches reality TV but what he meant by celebrity is getting your work known and a lot of people do great work and throughout the centuries, a lot of women have done great work. But for too long, women have had only half of the equation. They've done the great work. They've had the extraordinary talent, but they've not had the celebrity. So how do you define genius? It's a really tough question. And I think what I found as I continued the research is none of the standard definitions we use for genius actually apply. None of the ways that we've looked at genius in the past, you know, when you look at the old ways, they're completely ridiculous, like measuring the circumference of somebody's head to determine if they're a genius. Well, actually, that's not any more ridiculous than the IQ tests that we currently give. Genius has many different facets. And as I was choosing who to interview for the book, I used one half of Professor Joe explanation, which was, I looked for people with extraordinary talent. Sometimes I wondered why they didn't have the celebrity. Many of them did have the celebrity, but I think we need to open our definition of what genius is, what potential is, and see the many different kinds of talents that people have. Again, IQ measures one very small, definable kind of genius, and it really has never borne out. Yep, that resonates for me so much because as I was reading the book and I started to, you know, it pushed me to really think about genius and what does that mean to me? Who do I think of as a genius? Who have I applied that term to? I started thinking about it and I said, you know, when I think of the word genius, I think of Nina Simone. I think of Beyonce. I think of Frida Kalu. I think of Toni Morrison. <laughs> I think of all these really amazing artists. And, you know, there's leaders as well. I, and everybody isn't going to love to hear this, but I do think of Michelle Obama as a genius, like mm -hmm. her writing and, and everything that she does. And so it really caused me to question that. And it made me think, well, isn't that why this podcast exists? <laughs> you know, we've decided to create this podcast to amplify the voices of brilliant women because... I knew that so many of those women, to your point, weren't getting the celebrity. They were maybe never going to get it. And we set out to build this platform that was going to shine a spotlight. And so my question for you would be, so in the book, you talk about how to change 
this situation, right? Is one of the ways to change that is the onus on women to make it happen because that's what it feels like. You're reading the stories and I'm thinking about this podcast and the women that I have the opportunity to speak to on this show, it feels very much that the onus is on us and not the power structure itself. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on the podcast, because I think what you're doing is so important and shining a light on people who, as you said, don't, don't always get noticed. And it's very much what I was trying to do in The Genius of Women to say, let's open that definition. Let's realize that what we've been calling genius or talent is so narrow and is so based on so many different kinds of biases that we all have. The question of how does change come about? I think we all agree that there are big structural problems in the society. Those have to change. There's no question about it. But I see another, when you say it's the onus on women, I see another side to it also, which is that each of us only has one life. Mm -hmm. And maybe those structural problems are not going to change in your lifetime. So what are you going to do? Are you going to say, the structural problems are so great, there's nothing I can do with my life? I don't think that's the answer. So I think there has to be some, it's not, it shouldn't be seen as the onus, the burden, but really the challenge and the opportunity that we all have to say, yes, let's try to make the world see what needs to change, but let's also see what I as an individual can do and what kind of power I can achieve. So many of the women I spoke to really kind of didn't notice the obstacles in their way until they actually got to the top. And then once they got there, they looked back and they went, oh, oh yeah, that was, that was tough and other women shouldn't have to do that. And then some of them became absolutely wonderful advocates and mentors for other women. If you try to do that before you have the power to do it, maybe it's harder. So I, I think there needs to be that balance and recognizing what you can do for yourself and what you can do for the greater community. Let me give you one other example, which is if we go way back, women have, you know, the kinds of barriers that we can't even begin to imagine now. Women have always done great workarounds. Women have mm -hmm. figured out how to achieve when the whole world was telling them that they couldn't. And if it's okay, let me give you a historical example about that. Please One do. of the stories I encountered was a Fanny Mendelssohn, who was the sister of the composer Felix Mendelssohn. And as with so many women, she was equally talented to her brother. And uh, they toured together when they were young. By the way, the same story is very similar to Mozart's sister, which I also tell the story in the book. But uh, they toured when they were young. And then when she was maybe 14 or so, her father, Abraham Mendelssohn, wrote her a letter saying that it was time for her to go home and do the only thing that was acceptable for a woman, which was to be a housewife. And he wrote, you know, music can always be the career and the joy for, for Felix, but for you, it can only be in the side. Well, how terrible is that? Because it was her life. It was what she wanted to do. But the society was sending her home. So, okay, Fanny Mendelssohn went home. She did get married, but she did the great workaround. She continued playing, only she had salons in her own house. She wasn't allowed to play in public. She had a big living room. She happened to be a very wealthy lady, so she could invite two or 300 people to her living room, and she could continue to play, and that was considered acceptable because... It was in her own home, not in a public space. And she continued to compose. And this part of the story kind of bothers me a little bit, but she published most of her work under Felix's name. 
And he said he was doing her a great favor because it would be such a scandal if a woman published under her own name. By the way, beware of men who say they are protecting you. They're usually not. They're usually getting mm-hmm. something out of it too. But she published under his name and that way she got her work out into the world. At the very end of her life, which alas was quite, quite young, she did start publishing under her own name. And guess what? The whole world did not fall apart. But I like that story because the pressures of a society are powerful. It's very hard to stand up as an individual to them. And sometimes if you can just figure out how to get around it, your story like Fanny Mendelssohn's story and your music like Fanny Mendelssohn's music does last. Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? No worries. Register for an e-card today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like e-books, audiobooks, music, movies, and so much more. And yes, it's all still free. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am totally a library junkie. You can call me a nerd if you want to, honey. I'll take it. Denver Public Library branches will be reopening soon. So make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info. And don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener perks alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. For every purchase you make on Libro FM, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits. It's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SHEDID. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? Yeah, the workaround, the art of the workaround, right? There should be a a book or a class on that or something. (laughs) The art of the workaround. You remind me of one of the more interesting, one of the things that really stuck with me in this book is the conversation you have around women often being a prop for male completeness. (laughs) 
And I love the example of the movie Jerry Maguire <laughs> and the part where Tom Cruise character comes in and is like, you complete me. <laughs> and everybody melts and there's tears and, you know, the whole thing. And, you know, the commentary from you is that, well, when I went back and watched that movie the second time, I thought, well, what's in it for her? <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's an excellent point. This idea of the male always being the protector and the woman needing to complete him in some way and that we should be satisfied with that. Let's talk through that a little bit for our listeners yeah. who haven't read it yet. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And that is exactly the story I told. I was, I think I was on the treadmill one day and, you know, had Jerry Maguire on to keep me going. And I got to that scene and, you know, it's such a famous scene. You complete me and everybody knows that line and people just get all moved by it. And I listened to it and I thought, wait a minute, that's good for him. But what about her? <laughs> and, you know, there's another famous line from an old movie. I think it's the Jack Nicholson line from As Good As It Gets when he says uh, to Helen Hunt, you know, you make me a better man. Well, good, but you should be a better man on your own. You know, that, what is she getting out of it? But I do think that women have been so often put in that role of thinking that their role is to complete somebody and is to make the male look better and be better. And, you know, we have to be careful of that. Historically, once again, there are lots of cases where women have been ignored because the assumption is that they are completing the male. You know, another story I tell in the book is Lise Meitner, who was a physicist back in the 1930s who helped in the discovery of nuclear fission. And, you know, discovering nuclear fission is kind of a big deal. And it won the Nobel Prize. I always say it won the Nobel Prize because Lise Meitner did not win the Nobel Prize. It went to her lab partner, a man named Otto Hahn, who was a chemist. Now, Otto Hahn was a very nice man and a very good chemist, and he probably deserved the Nobel Prize for something else, but not for nuclear fission, which he didn't really completely understand or contribute to in the way that Lise Meitner did. But the man on the Nobel Committee couldn't imagine that a woman had done anything else other than support the man. If it was Lise Meitner and Otto Hahn who had made this discovery, it must have been Otto Hahn's discovery with Lise Meitner behind her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, women behind the man is an old trope in literature and politics and everything else. I think women really need to be able to move beyond that. And, you know, of course, many have, women have the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize since Lise Meitner, but that story always stands to me as a big red flag of warning, that confirmation bias, that you weren't the one responsible for it, that there must have been a man who did it. You know, we have to be aware of it and uh, we have to be able to speak out and say, you know, no, it, it was me. I was, <laughs> leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Do you think something like Me Too or the Time's Up campaign has been useful or effective in moving us to a place socially that has more gender equity? You know, I always worried about the backlash from Me Too mm -hmm. and what might happen from that, as many people did. Because, you know, as the Me Too movement was first starting, we started to hear some older men who had a very good solution to it, which was, well, I guess I'll just stop hiring women, or I guess I'll just stop mentoring women, or I'm certainly not going to take any woman who works for me out for lunch anymore. These are not good results. But on the other hand, these stories have to be told, and the awareness has to be raised. And I have such admiration and respect for the women who have spoken out and who've said, you know, this isn't right. And it's not just in sexual harassment, it's in so many other areas. There's a young woman I know is at a particular company where she was about to get a promotion. And 
she was told that, you know, let's hold off on your promotion until you come back. We'll see then if, you know, if, if we want to give you the promotion. Well, you know what? No, that's not how it should happen. If you deserve the promotion, then you should get the promotion and and the issues of being pregnant or how you're going to take care of your kids or whatever else are completely separate from that. Mm-hmm. So I think the more we raise that awareness, the more we hear about these stories, the more people do start to think about them, at least. I've been asked to speak at any number of law firms. Unfortunately, it's all ended up on Zoom, of course, <laughs> where they're thinking about diversity and they're wondering why women aren't staying there. And they've asked me to talk about the genius of women and some of the things that I found out. And that's great if these essentially all male law firms, they're not all male, but their partnerships are very predominantly male in some of those old line law firms. And if they're saying, what are we doing wrong? Why are women leaving? Why do women not want to be part of this firm? What are we missing? That's a great step forward. And that's something that uh, we can be proud of and that we can be very grateful to the people who are speaking out and helping us understand that. So does that lead you to believe that there's hope and not just hope, but actual evidence that adults, older people can change their attitudes about whatever their beliefs are around gender roles and actually put into action changes that can happen now. Do we have to wait for the next generation? I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes I'm talking to people. <laughs> Actually, this happened the other night. I was just talking to my husband about somebody and I said, you know, he's an example of the old white men who need to die off. I'm sorry, they just <laughs> need to die off. Forgive me. It's a terrible thing to say. You know, there is that sense sometimes of like, those guys have got to go before we can make any change. I think some of those guys are very eager to make change and to see things. And, you know, it's hard for anybody when the world starts turning upside down, right? When you have to start seeing things a little bit differently. Does the next generation see it completely differently? I don't know. I think that some of these things are more ingrained than we realize. You know, back when I wrote my very first book, as I mentioned before, Women in Sports, back when I graduated college a million and a half years ago, I remember being in the middle of writing that book and thinking, oh my gosh, by the time this book is out, it's going to be so dated. Everything will have changed by then because everybody understands these things. Everybody understands that women can be athletes and that there's no difference between men and women physically and, you know, in as dramatic ways as we make out in sports. And okay, and now here we are, you know, decades later, and no, that has not changed. Maybe, you know, the wonderful Williams sisters make a little bit more money than Billie Jean King did, but have the essential attitudes changed? I'm not sure. So I think that some of these things are move at a slower pace than we would like. But Mm -hmm. on the other side of that, let's realize how quick this whole thing has been. We are celebrating the centennial of women having the right to vote. A hundred years is not that long of time. Hillary Clinton made the point that her own mother was born before women had the right to vote, the year before women had the right to vote. And, you know, then she got to live long enough to campaign for her daughter in 2008 and to see her sworn in as Secretary of State. So that's a lot of change in one person's lifetime. And so I think, you know, let's just be careful to see both sides of it. Change goes slower than we'd like, but it's also been a shorter time, perhaps, than we realize that we've been facing these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. I think it's interesting that I've been thinking a lot about that, maybe as a result of producing this season of the podcast, and it's all these brilliant 
authors that are talking about really important things in far better way than I could. And one of the authors that I interviewed recently is actually a children's book author, a woman by the name of Virginia Mendez. And she writes bilingual children's books addressing gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating, and the books are adorable, and they have all these cute illustrations. <laughs> it's very simple, a simple look, you know, a childlike look at gender roles of, oh, this is a girl, but this girl can also fly a rocket ship, you know, that kind of thing. And my thinking is how sad it would be if we had to wait for an entire new generation to be born and taught <laughs> before we had any type of change before we had any real hope of equity in our society. But it is a good reminder, I think, to your point, a lot has changed in the past hundred years, but there's a lot more work to be done. So there's hope. I think that there's definitely hope. And I think that there's a lot of bright spots to see that change happening. From your perspective, how do you view that? What's the work that needs to happen to continue to create change and progress? Well, I think we do need to recognize that we've been trying some of these things for a long time. And, you know, you mentioned that children's book back in the 1970s, I believe it was, Marlo Thomas did Free to Be You and Me, which was also trying to fight gender stereotypes. And it had a song in it about William's doll. And, you know, it was okay for boys to have dolls and all of the strong things that girls could do. And it was huge at the time. And again, I thought at the time, we're all going to get this now, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or whenever I first heard that. So I think we just need to persist. I think we need to keep going and we need to believe it ourselves deep down. And I think that that's probably a bigger problem than we realize. I think that sometimes women say that they believe in equality or that they want equality, but forgive me, if you're quitting your job to stay home with your kids, then you're not saying, I think it's really important for women to work and be treated equally in the workforce. So we have these inconsistencies in what we believe and what we think. And, you know, some women do still hide behind men and do still have that role and do still want that expectation. And so I think we have to be careful in assuming that everybody feels the same. And I wish they did. And I wish we could make everybody see that there are advantages to them. But, you know, there was just a TV show about Phyllis Schlafly and she was fighting the Equal Rights Amendment against it. And one of her reasons was that she thought women were better off being protected by men. And so I think we have to realize that the whole world is not on our side that, you know, women are not even a united block voting and they shouldn't be, right? Their women are very individual. But, you know, I mentioned when women got the vote a hundred years ago, I think the expectation or the fear that kept some politicians from giving women the vote or they didn't give it, they, you know, women fought hard for it, was that this is going to be one block and they're all going to vote the same way and maybe it'll be against me. Well, that's not how women vote. They vote as individuals and uh, Mm -hmm. we, we need to realize that and we each of us need to fight for the things that we care about. It's an argument as old as feminism itself. (laughs) (laughs) We're not gonna solve it right now. We're definitely not. (laughs) We can try, sure. You know, one of the things that you point out in the book, and, and I thought I really appreciated, was that one of the commonalities between all of the women that you studied was this attitude of non conforming. They were just like, okay, you don't want me to do that. That's fine. I'm just going to 
come over here and do it and I, or I'm just going to do it this way or I'm just not going to tell you about it. <laughs> like I'm just going to do this thing. And they all had a unique way of being very nonconformist, even if it wasn't really a super conscious thing for them. But they were, they're each nonconforming in sort of the essence of who they are. What was so important about that? And what were some of the other commonalities you noticed between the women that you studied? Well, you're right. I think almost by definition, geniuses have to be different, right? If you're going to do something different and special, you have to be able to stand up to society and say, either you're wrong or I don't care <laughs> what, what you say. And one of the women who I admired enormously was Dr. Frances Arnold, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago in chemistry. And when she started, you know, it takes a long time to win a Nobel Prize. So she started her work some decades ago when she was quite young. And she created a new way of developing enzymes and proteins in the lab. It was completely different from what was being done at the time. And everybody in positions of power then and in positions of power in the chemistry world told her that she was crazy and that it couldn't work. And I said to her, how did you have the courage to continue with what you were doing? And she said, I did not doubt myself. Mm -hmm. And I love that line. I thought you should win a Nobel Prize for saying I did not doubt myself. Think of what we all could do if we did not doubt ourselves. If we said, or another woman I interviewed named Fei-Fei Li, who is one of the great leaders in artificial intelligence, and she's at Stanford, and she doesn't quite have, you know, that same powerful personality that Dr. Arnold does. She grew up in China, she's a little quieter, but she also had that absolute belief, and she taught computers how to see in a different way than had ever been done before. She's young, she's in her 40s, and, and when she was doing this not so long ago, people again were telling her she was crazy. And she said, well, you know, I thought, thought about what they were saying. And I realized, I think I'm right. And if I'm wrong, what's the worst that can happen? I'll just go on and try something else. That's a powerful way to think, to be able to say, I don't really care what you're saying, or I will evaluate carefully what you're saying. I'll think about it, but I won't necessarily agree with it. And then I'll go on and do what I think is best. That, I think, is a definition of many of the genius women I spoke to. You asked about some of the other commonalities I saw. One of them was what I described as seeing beyond gender and not seeing yourself limited by gender. One director I spoke to, a Broadway director named Tina Landau, a wonderful woman, she had been nominated for a Tony Award for directing. And she was the only woman nominated that year for the Tony for directing, which I think is probably true any year, almost no women get nominated. But she said she hated it when the media referred to her as a woman director. She said, I'm not a woman director. I'm a woman who directs. Mm -hmm. And those are two very different things. And if you think about it, it's subtle, but it's really powerful. A woman director says all women are the same and all women direct the same. And a woman who directs says, I'm a woman and I'm delighted to be a woman and I'm a director and I'm a good director. And those two things have nothing to do with each other. And I think over and over again, the genius women that I saw did indeed feel that way, that their gender was sort of irrelevant to the work that they did. They saw themselves as scientists, not women scientists. They saw themselves as painters, not women painters. And I think we have often made a mistake of replacing a new stereotype with an old one, right? So you and I have just talked about some of the old stereotypes that we'd like to get over, but now I think it's been replaced so that you hear people say often, you know, well, we need women, more women on boards and more women in corporations because women are more collegial and they get along better with people and that's important. Well, is that true? You know, 
Some women are collegial and cooperative, absolutely. Some men are collegial and cooperative. Some women are leaders, some men are leaders. To draw that across lines is like saying woman director, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you think you're being complimentary by saying women are collegial and cooperative, you're not. You're limiting your view of who people are and what people can do. And so I think the women who are able to see beyond that, to say my gender has nothing to do with my talents or ability, are often the ones who are very much able to succeed. I'll tell you one other thing that I found in common often with these women is that many of them had a very multifaceted life. That, you know, you think of a genius as being hidden off, just, you know, doing their work and not doing anything else. Maybe it was happened to be the people I spoke to, but almost all of them were married or had partners. Most of them had children of different ages, depending on how old the women were. And one of them who I spoke to, um, Sian Bylock, who's the president of Barnard College and is also a psychology researcher. And she's the mom of an eight-year-old. And she said she thinks it's really important for women to have many different selves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she said some days she thinks that she's just the best psychology researcher in the world because she's just made this great breakthrough on something. And some days she thinks she's the worst mom in the world because she forgot to pack her eight-year-old daughter's lunch. And it's so important that we have those different selves to fall back on. And men, they've always had their work self and their home self, and they get to be parents and they get to be all sorts of different things. And women have often limited themselves. And I think that the women who, it's interesting to me that the women who have succeeded and who I interviewed as genius women so often had many, many other parts of themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think having that multifaceted life is really something to aim for. Part of it. You know, you talk a lot about self-doubt and women sometimes limiting themselves, whether it be intentional or not. In fact, most times it's probably unintentional. And I've noticed that a lot. Of course, I've noticed it with myself. I have self-doubt just like everybody else in the world does. And it's held me back at times. But one thing I've noticed, and it made it really sort of acutely clear when I started this podcast is I've always crowdsourced guests. I've always gone to the audience and said, who should we be talking to? Or, hey, should we be talking to you? Because I want to talk to you too. So, you know, send me an email. Let me know who you are. And I noticed that I would put that call out. This is a show by and for women. I would get a lot of responses from men. I don't interview men on this show. (laughs) I would get several responses from men and I would be like, why are these men emailing me? And I would get few responses from women. And oftentimes when I did, if it was somebody that wanted to pitch herself, it would be in a very, I guess, apologetic tone. So you don't know me and you're probably not interested in it, but I wrote this book or I have this blog or I founded this organization or like I did this thing. And they would be incredible things that they're doing, like really incredible. (laughs) And I would sit there and read that email and I would think, why are you apologizing for existing? Many women would outright apologize for emailing when I asked them to. <laughs> and it's this really fascinating thing to me that, so one of the things that I do when I talk about the podcast or when, like I'm on other shows or at events or whatever, this is what I talk about because there's women in that audience and I'm constantly telling them, stop apologizing for the work that you do. Like I literally asked you <laughs> to send me an email. Don't apologize for it. Is that something, how do you think the women that you researched and interviewed deal with their own self-doubt, what can the rest of us perhaps learn from them? 
Yeah, that's such a great story you just told. And you're 100% right. And that is so important. And I think one of the main things I personally learned in writing The Genius of Women was to stop being self-deprecating. Because, you know, we were talking before about the great workarounds that women do. Well, I think one of them is to try to be non-threatening. I think that because we hear so much about, you know, not wanting to be too ambitious or to frighten men or whatever, whatever. So women who are very talented or very smart or in very high positions will often take that step back to try to be non-threatening. And when you do that in a self-deprecatory way, I think it's really damaging. And I think so many of us aren't even aware. I certainly wasn't aware how self-deprecating I would be, that that was one of my techniques was to always try to be extra nice to people. Extra nice is fine, but extra nice doesn't have to mean also saying, well, I'm sure I'm not good enough for that. Let me tell you a quick story about that that I write about in the book. Meg Urie is a wonderful woman and she's the head of the physics department at Yale. She was, here we are in 2020, by the way, and I can't tell you how many of the women I interviewed were the first of something. And she was the first woman tenured physics professor at Yale and the first woman to run the department. But at any rate, she told me a story about a meeting she had held and it was with tenured women professors at Yale from various departments. And because many of them didn't know each other, she started the meeting by asking them all to, you know, give their names, introduce themselves, and say what field they were an expert in. And the first woman said, you know, whoever she was, and then she said, well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'm very good at. And then the next woman said, well, you know, of course, I'm also not an expert, but my field is. And they went around the room and everybody had some kind of, you know, apologetic pullback comment like that. And Meg said it absolutely infuriated her because... By definition, being a tenured professor at Yale means you're an expert at something. That's how you become a tenured professor. The currency at a university is expertise. So if you're a woman claiming that you're not an expert, you're just harming yourself. But it's become so ingrained in us to not flaunt our talents and to not flaunt what we can do that we damage ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. I think you're pointing it out is so important. And I think that women can just try to stop. You have no other choice. Find another way to be nice. Find another way to be non-threatening if you think that that's important. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But don't do it at the detriment to yourself, to your own self-image, and to how other people see you. I think you're right. I think it's survival technique for many women. It's something that we've learned over time can get us where we're going, or at least make us feel like it's softening the road a little bit. <laughs> and, and you know, I think the other part of that is if you're a woman who is bold, who is non-conformist just in who she is, and but in that loud kind of way, the way that I am, <laughs> and are constantly being told by people, especially men, to just smile more and to be more quiet. And can you please just, in your previous example of women being hired or asked to things because they're like agreeable (laughs) or whatever. I've actually had a male superior in a job once tell me, you know, we really asked you to be on this committee because we need more women so that it's more the stereotypes, you know, more agreeable, more whatever, more collaborative. And I was like, yeah, but you asked me. I'm not nice. If you wanted nice, then you should have asked somebody else. If you wanted somebody to tell the truth, Mm -hmm. I thought that's why I was here. (laughs) So I understand it. And, And so I think the other piece of that technique, that survival technique is learning pretty early on that when you are a woman who's stepping out, that sometimes you get punished for that. 
Yeah, um, that's right. And, you know, I think you need to keep being bold and, and keep being just who you are. I tell the story in the book. I was the editor-in-chief of Parade magazine at the time that Parade was a huge magazine. And I was dealing one day with one of my editors who was male, and he had done something that I didn't think was quite right, the way something was edited. And my way of telling him that I didn't like what he had written was to say, you know, maybe I'm our dumbest reader, but I just didn't really understand that. And it was actually one of the other editors, a female editor, who was standing there and she said, may I talk to you? And <laughs> I said, sure. And I went into her office and she closed the door and she said, look, you may fire me for this, but could you stop talking that way? You're the editor in chief. We all look up to you. We have a circulation of 35 million. You are not our dumbest reader. <laughs> And I said, no, I'm not firing you. I'm thanking you. What? Thank you for that great comment, because absolutely, you're right. And I think even when you have the title, even when you're the editor-in-chief, or the, it's hard sometimes to accept that you get to be that. You get to be the leader, and you get to take that role, because it has been so ingrained from so early on that you're not supposed to be that. And I'm glad it wasn't ingrained in you and that you are able to speak boldly and keep standing up to those people who tell you to do otherwise. I agree. <laughs> you know, applause to your colleague that called out that moment for you right. and brought it to your attention. And, and truthfully, for me, it's been a lot of other people who have in moments when I've shrunk myself to you know, conform with the mainstream or whatever. It's been other people who have said to me, you need, that's not who you are and you need to stop doing that. And I really don't appreciate it when I hear you talk about yourself that way. People having people around me who are willing to look me in the eye and hold me accountable to my own standards. So that helps. <laughs> that's great. I love that. And, and it's a great example because when we have people like you doing that and standing up, then that becomes the norm, right? Or that becomes okay for other people to do. And, you know, not everyone is a genius. Not everyone can be distinctive and stand up to the whole world. It's a lot to ask of anybody. And most of us need those role models. Most of us need somebody who has done it first and mm -hmm. to say, oh yeah, I guess I can be like her. I guess I can do that. If she did that, I can do that. The genius women who I interviewed and the genius women in history, they were going to succeed no matter what. They, they had something indefinable and that they were just going to get there. It's that next level of people who are really talented and really good, but can still be pushed down and crushed by social expectations and social demands and by that person telling them to stop being so bold and to smile more. Mm -hmm. And those are the people who need your role modeling and your image to say, okay, no, there's somebody doing it differently and it's okay if I do it that way too. Mm -hmm. I love it. Again, Janice, I really have enjoyed the book. I'm looking forward to finishing these last couple chapters, hopefully tonight, if I can stay awake long enough, <laughs> but definitely the next Not couple of days. Not because of the book, right? Not because of the book, but because I haven't slept in the last week and I'm a little tired today, Aww. but I'm definitely looking forward to finishing this. And for our listeners, you, this is another book that you have an opportunity to win. So make sure you listen to the credits at the end. So you know exactly how you can win this book, The Genius of Women get it in your house, get it on that bookshelf, make sure you read it. I learned so much. I was, most of the women who were highlighted in this book, I didn't 
know anything or very little about. So it really expanded my knowledge and deepened my thinking around just the concept of genius in general and leadership and, and all of the things that it touches. So I've appreciated it so much, Janice. Where should our listeners go to find the book? Books available everywhere. You can get it on Amazon.com, The Genius of Women. And there's more information on my website, which is just uh, JaniceKaplan.com. But I hope you will buy it. It's a great gift for friends and family. And I think it's a great inspiration to a lot of people. And thank you for your support and for enjoying it. And it's not a chore to read it. It's meant to be fun and it's meant to be inspiring. And I hope it does. Definitely. That. It definitely is. You achieved that goal for sure. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us today, Janice. I appreciate you so much and your work. It's been inspiring and it has been a fun read. So thank you for that. And folks, you know that we will link to all of the places where you can find the book and learn more about Janice Kaplan in our show notes to make that easy for you. Again, make sure you listen all the way through the credits to the end so you can learn how you can win yourself a copy of this book. And as usual, thank you so much for your time. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. I don't know why you haven't subscribed if you haven't done that yet. but get on it and please continue to share. That's how we've grown this podcast to becoming a global audience. It's because of you, our amazing and loyal listeners who talk about the people that we're talking to on here, the work that we're doing and sharing with your friends. And now we're getting downloaded all over the place. And I am forever in the deepest part of my soul, grateful to you for that support. Thanks again for joining us. Make sure you come back next week for another installment of That's What She Did podcast, where we are interviewing the most brilliant women around. Until next time, we're out. Hey!